The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Judges chapter 16, we're continuing our study in this wonderful Old Testament book that often uh, we don't know that much about or maybe haven't studied that much, and we've been going through it over the past few months. We come to the climax tonight of the account of Samson, very familiar ground, a story that many people know a little bit about, even if they don't know much about Samson's whole life story. Judges 16 and the account of Samson. Let us give heed to God's word. One day, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn, we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him, so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh thongs that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh thongs that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the thongs as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his great strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So so Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, until now you have been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with a pin. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. 
Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, Come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me, O God. Please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel 20 years. This is God's holy word. If you've ever gone to the Gettysburg battlefield and walked around some of the key locations there, you've probably stood on... Seminary Ridge, where the Union soldiers stood to repel Pickett's famous charge. You stand there, if you've ever been there, and think of the few Confederate soldiers who actually made it to that point under such devastating fire and briefly breached the Union lines. That point is often called the high water mark of the Battle of Gettysburg and also the high water mark for the South, for the entire Civil War, the closest they came to victory. 
Well, as we look tonight at the book of Judges, we might in a sense speak of the end of chapter 15 as a kind of high water mark. And then chapter 16, which we've just read, comes along as a clear contrast. The end of chapter 15 shows us Samson victorious over his enemies and dependent on God, sustained by God. He was very thirsty, we read at the end of chapter 15, and he prays, and God opens the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it, reminiscent of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness when God would open a rock and the water would sustain them. So Samson, in chapter 15 at the end, dependent on the Lord, sustained by the Lord. But what a contrast when we come to chapter 16. We see Samson self-sufficient, far from God, and deserted by God, although not completely. Even the very structure of the author's narrative points to this contrast between chapters 15 and 16. Notice that chapter 15, which we didn't read, concludes with the typical formula that the writer usually puts at the very end of a judge's life. Notice at the end of chapter 15, verse 20, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Why does the author insert that there? It's as if he's saying, There is a sense in which Samson's career as a judge really ended here. We read the tragic concluding chapter, and the author will end chapter 16 with an even briefer formula. We read at the very end, he, Samson, had led Israel 20 years. So a very brief concluding formula there. But clearly, there is a difference in chapter 16. This contrast is also evident in the fact that the Spirit of God is never mentioned in chapter 16. Even at the end, when Samson finally prays and carries out his final devastating feat, and God clearly answers his prayer, it doesn't say that the Spirit of God came upon him, as it says in other times. And I might remind you here that in the Samson narrative, The author mentions the Spirit of God specifically coming upon Samson three different times. We saw that that's more than any other judge. In fact, only three other judges get any reference at all to the Spirit of God, and each one of those three only get that reference once. Samson gets it three times, but not in chapter 16. So chapter 16 is not a high water point, high water mark of the book. It's, It's far from it. Yet it is not without powerful teaching about hope and God's grace to his people, even in their foolishness and in their sin and stupidity. I want to look at this chapter as a study of the nature and power of idolatry It's not surprising that we see Samson in this state. And really, Samson mirrors the whole nation of Israel. And here at the end of chapter 16, we see him enslaved and humiliated 
and chained in the very temple of the idol Dagon. And yet, even there, God has not completely forsaken him. I want us to look at four points concerning idolatry as we think about our text. The first is the attraction of idols. The second point will be the danger of idols. And then number three, we'll see what's at stake in idolatry. And then finally, God's faithful love, our only hope. So, first of all, the attraction of idols. Chapter 16 clearly shows us Samson falling into idolatry. And we might ask, well, what is Samson's Achilles heel? Well, it's not really his hair. It's women. That's the idolatry Samson falls into. We see two women in this chapter, one briefly in verses 1 to 3, this prostitute in Gaza, and then in verses 4 and following this famous account of Samson and Delilah. But Samson specifically falls into these illicit relationships. Yet, it is more than just that. There's a very strong theme here that Samson goes in this direction with a complete disregard for God's calling on his life. And Samson forsakes the Lord to a large extent and seems to despise and take for granted the very gifts that God has given to him, especially his amazing strength. It seems like he counts it for a very little thing and just treats it in a very despicable way. The first woman we read this brief account of is in verses 1 to 3, and this prostitute he goes to see in Gaza, and he spends part of a night with her, but he ends up victorious. It's a very interesting brief account of how he is with her, and the Philistines know he's there, so they set this guard at the city gate. And you have to remember, a city gate is not just like we might think of a back fence or something like that. It's a, it was an elaborate affair in most cities of the size of Gaza at that time. It would involve massive posts on each side of the gate and maybe even a two-story guardhouse. And the problem that these Philistines has is they probably were in the guardhouse probably dozing or asleep, not thinking that, Phil, that Samson would leave till morning and they would be awake then. So Samson just comes along and uproots the posts of the gate and the doors and carries them off. And we're told in verse 3 that he puts them on his back and carries them on the, to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Scholars debate what this means. Does it just mean in the direction of Hebron, which was east, of course, but Hebron was probably about 40 miles away. So this is not just a short jump with these massive gates on his back. Uh, but you say, why would the author say on top of the hill that faces Hebron if it was a hill that faced Hebron, but it was 40 miles away? You wouldn't talk about a hill that way. So it seems clear that Samson took the gates the whole way, which would have been a multi-day trip. But evidently, he did that as a tangible proof of his victory. He took these gates that far. But we get this sense from this beginning of chapter 16 that Samson is overly self-confident. 
He's not humble. He's not dependent on God. He's not seeking the glory of God. Here's a very self-centered man, in a sense, using his strength for his own ends, which has been a failing of Samson throughout this narrative. And then we come to this famous story of Delilah. We don't know much about her. We're told here that she lived in the valley of Sorek. And again, we see Samson being with her. We're told that he fell in love with her, and he gives in to that. He's not married to her. But they're playing this game. The game is, let's pretend the Philistines are here. And apparently, Samson is willing to play this game with her. You just wonder uh, what is going through his mind, especially with the references as she tries these different tactics to, to tie him up. And the text says that there are Philistines hiding in the room. I was thinking about that this week and thinking, how big were these rooms? Did he hear the Philistines and the commotion? Did he actually fight them? It doesn't tell us that he fought them. Maybe he did. Or maybe they saw that when he just broke the bands, they slunk out. But what a strange situation this must have been, time after time, to be playing this game. And Delilah, of course, gives the sob story to him. Samson, you don't really care. You don't trust me. You don't love me. Well, of course I don't trust you. You're hiding Philistines in our room and then tying me up. What is this? But something is wrong with all of this. Samson must have known that Delilah is plotting against him and willing to sell him to the Philistines. But I think the end of verse 16 is very revealing. It says, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. Just nagged and nagged and nagged and continued to ask him. And finally, he just gives in to her. There's no good reason apparently why he did it, but he did it. You see Samson here, you just think of him and what state of mind and spirit he was in, and you'd have to say he was in a spiritual stupor of sorts. He really didn't care. And so this whole chapter points to the powerful attractions of idols. Women, in Samson's case here. And Samson, in turn, mirrors the tragedy of the nation of Israel repeatedly going after idols themselves and worshiping false gods. That's the doleful refrain of the book of Judges. We've heard over and over again, a judge comes and saves them, and they return to the Lord a little bit, it seems, and before you know it, they're back in idolatry again. The tragedy of Samson mirrors the tragedy of Israel's idolatry. And his running after other lovers is a picture of the people of Israel running after false gods, both of them blithely assuming that all is well and thinking somehow that God is always at their disposal. But he's not. The attraction of idols. Think about that. How does that point apply to you and to me? Of course, the idols of any culture and any age are always very alluring and very powerful. It shouldn't surprise us that Israel was always being drawn away to idolatry. The pagan influences around them and even within them found an instinctive foothold in their hearts. But think of the idolatries you and I 
wrestle with. The typical idolatries of Western American society. Just as powerful, just as insidious, and they affect each one of us in this room. We are not immune from idolatry. We think of the typical ones that come to mind, money, materialism. I don't think many times that we know how much we are influenced by the God of materialism or the whole realm of success and prestige and power and all these things or comfort, pleasure. We Americans love to be comfortable, don't we? I know that it's an idolatry that I face. Even the whole realm of busyness, American productivity and busyness. Sometimes my back goes out and I have to wear my back brace and I can't do as much. And again, again, we must be aware of making a one-to-one correspondence between affliction in our lives and some sin in our lives. But sometimes I'm convicted of the fact that God allows me to have my back go bad because there are so many things that I like to do all the time and God is slowing me down with his loving, fatherly discipline. And then we even go on to the idols that we make of good things. Tim Keller talks about this in his new book, Counterfeit Gods, about the idolatry he made of ministry, that it, in a sense, turned to an an idol as something that uh, ruled him. And so what we're seeing here from Samson's example, from the nation of Israel's example, Christian, don't be surprised by the power and the attraction of idolatry. Whether you're five years old or 55 years old or 85 years old, in this life, there, are, there is always the appeal and the attraction of idols. Secondly, then, the danger of idols, or we could call this point the slippery slope of idolatry here. And really, we see uh, kind of a threefold danger, again, mirroring the nation of Israel in chapter 16. We see Samson self-sufficient, blind, and deserted by God. We see those three elements of, of, the, of the way idolatry works in our lives. Notice the self-sufficiency theme in, in verses 1 to 3. Again, in Gaza, Samson doesn't even seem to be worried. He goes into the very enemy's lair to sin and is confident, and it turns out well for him. He takes the city gate and leaves. But the irony is it won't be long till he'll be back in Gaza again with his eyes gouged out, enslaved, and deserted by God. And the whole Delilah episode is a picture of a self-sufficient Samson. He always assumes he will be strong. He always assumes he will be able to, you know, just do what he always does and snaps the ropes like they're made out of uh, wax. And so Samson dabbles with sin and idolatry. He toys with it because of this root cause of self-sufficiency, thinking you don't need to be dependent on the Lord. Self-sufficiency leads down the path of temptation to idolatry. And then there's blindness, which is, in a sense, the next step, we might say. But again, these aren't necessarily steps, but they're all part of the danger that idolatry poses for us. 
Samson has become blind to his spiritual state and his spiritual danger. Notice in verse 20, when finally his head has been shaved, he wakes up and Delilah calls, as she's done many times, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And then the tragic centerpiece of this chapter is the next phrase. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, notice the first phrase there, but he did not know. There are three times in the Samson narrative that that's repeated for us. We saw the first one in chapter 13, verse 16, when Manoah, Samson's father and his wife, get the angel's announcement about this son that's going to be born for them. And at the end of verse 16, it says, Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. There's the first, did not know. Then the second did not know comes at the beginning of chapter 14 in verse 4 when we recall Samson already is wanting to disobey his parents and he wants to go to um, the Philistines and get a woman there, a wife there. But in verse 4 it says, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. Well, here is the third and last did not know. And it's the climax of all of them. Samson goes to shake himself as he always thinks he can, but he did not know. The secret was on the other side, so to speak, this time. Samson did not realize that the Lord had left him. The tragedy of the Samson story is that the Lord had departed Samson, and Samson didn't even know it. That's the tragedy of it all. He had become blind to the things of God. His heart had become hardened. His conscience had become callous to the things of God. Doesn't it remind you of Jesus Christ's rebuke to the church of Laodicea in Revelation three seventeen, when Jesus says, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And he tells the Laodiceans to repent and to return to their first love. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's a call to repentance. How tragic when God's professing people cannot see that they are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. In other words, that's our constant state. We are always totally dependent on God's grace. And when we lose sight of that, we begin to go down this very path that Samson walked. Blindness and self-sufficiency, the two go hand in hand, and then they lead together to this very tragic verse about the Lord had left him. But Samson did not know the Lord had left him, being deserted, at least in part, by God. And again, the immediate thing that may come to your mind is, does that mean Samson was completely deserted by God? Was he not, to use a New Testament term, was he not a saved man anymore? I don't think that's true. I think Samson was a saved person. He was an Old Testament believer. He ends up in the Hebrews 11 roll call of men and women of faith. Believe it or not, sometimes I just shake my head when I see that, but it shows God's grace. And Samson was a 
believer. Yet, I would say at this point, Samson was living far from the joys of God's active presence in his life. And what is the application to us then about the danger of idolatry? And that is this. Idolatry is always a very slippery slope. Idolatry is always a great spiritual danger to you and to me. We never get beyond the danger of idolatry, of of these idolatries that allure and attract us. And so we need to guard our hearts. We need to be repenting of our tendencies to our modern idols. We need to be asking God for eyes to see what leads us astray because it's so easy for you and for me to be blind to these things. And we need to immerse our hearts and our minds in God's Word, which acts like a mirror to reflect and show us the state of our heart. God's Word is given to us so that it exposes our sin and shows us the condition of our hearts. Well, we would heed the phrase, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. And the question to ask yourself is something along these lines. What are the things that preoccupy my thinking? What are the things that preoccupy my daydreams? Things that I just dream about. And these things may not be evil or wrong, but they all have the potential to become idols in our lives. Even the best gifts of God can become idols. I like that first verse of that hymn we sang, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart, wean it from earth through all its pulses moved. The hymnist knew that he needed or she needed, whoever wrote that hymn, the Spirit of God to empower upon our lives to wean us from earth. That's another way to talk about idolatry. We are people of the earth. We so easily relate to and embrace and just get over-involved in earth instead of having our affections, that's our loves, set on things above, the things that we set our love on. What are the idols of your heart? Again, idols have a wonderful attraction, a powerful attraction, and they are very dangerous, and we must guard against being blind to them. Well, thirdly, then... What is at stake in idolatry? And the answer from our text is the glory of God is at stake. Not ultimately, because we know that ultimately God will glorify his name and himself. But his glory is at stake as revealed in and through his people. The principle we see here is that when God's people give in to idolatry, the glory of God is obscured to some degree. And the glory of God is dragged through the muck and mire with them. Isn't that what happens here in chapter 16? We see Samson, God's servant, humiliated, enslaved. The celebrated hero is brought low. Now he is grinding, we read. He's in prison, grinding. Why did they mention that? Well, because this is the work of women and slaves. Samson is humiliated. That's why they have him doing that task, a deep humiliation. He can no longer see. He doesn't have his eyes. He no longer has his great strength. And we see in the final scene that he's brought out to the temple to entertain, to perform. And somehow he does that. I'm not sure what they have him doing. We're not told. But 
how low he's brought here. But in a sense, I want you to hear this. Samson's humiliation is also Yahweh's, God's humiliation. Because of Samson, and we could also say because of the nation of Israel, the honor of God, the true and only God, is given to a false god. Notice verses 23 to 24. The rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. They're confirmed in their idolatry because of Samson, in a sense. When the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, and here we have a hymn to praise to a false god. Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. And we know that Dagon is nothing He's an idol. He's a false god. He's not God at all. But Samson's behavior has not only dragged himself in the mire, but it's dragged the honor of the true God in the mire. The honor of God is at stake, and God's name must be vindicated, and it will be. It will be at the end of chapter 16. And by the way, we... Modern folks have a pretty hard time with this whole scene and women and men being killed. You don't know. It doesn't say that any children were there, but an Israelite reading this would have laughed. This would have been a great story to an Israelite of that day. It would have vindicated the honor of the God of Israel. And even though an Israelite would have laughed, the writer brings this out, and we've seen this a number of points along the line, the humor and the irony that the writer brings out to make a very serious point, to make a serious theological point about the futility of idolatry and the weakness of idols, that they are nothing. So God vindicates his honor here, and in many times in the Old Testament, he does that, but he does it supremely at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and he will vindicate his name ultimately and finally when Jesus Christ returns. The vindication of God's name. But we need to think about this point. God has linked his glory to his people, in a sense. And one day God will finally cure his people of all idolatry, and he will receive all the glory. The vindication of God's name. That's what's at stake. And so we have to back up and ask ourselves, does concern for the glory of God impact the way you and I live? Does that have any impact on the way we live? We have to ask ourselves, how much does the honor and praise of God move me? How much does it affect the way I live day to day? Just two brief examples of this we could think of. One is, how do I react to suffering in my life? Isn't our initial reaction to suffering, I want to get rid of it? I want to be better. I want to get out of this. I don't want this circumstance. And the answer is certainly yes, we have that reaction. Any suffering is grievous. But is there any thought for God's glory? I hope so. I hope that our prayer in suffering might be, Oh, Lord, be glorified in my suffering. If your sovereign will is for me to go through this, Lord, let me... Be sanctified by this. Let me be your vessel. Let me be your instrument. Use this in my life and in others' lives that your name might be praised. A concern for God's glory 
Is that in our hearts and lives? Another brief example concerning how we live. And I just think of the epidemic of professing Christian young people living together outside of marriage. I just can't tell you story after story after story after story that I hear about this these days. And it is an epidemic. And I have to stop and ask at some point, do any of these professing Christians have any sense of the dishonor to God's name that this brings in the world? And it's not only young folks, it's older folks too, so I could spread that way. But whatever the moral issue, whatever the issue where the cost of following Christ is hard for you, maybe at school, maybe in your job, there's a cost, yes, but I hope the goal deep down in your heart is the glory of God. Let that be foremost in our hearts and minds. Well, this brings to our fourth and last point, and that is our only hope is God's faithful love. And what a wonderful point this is in terms of our hope for the final cure for our remaining idolatries is in God. It's not in the power that we have in and of ourselves. Yes, we need to resolve to cast every idol underfoot, but it's God who delivers us. And chapter 16 is very tragic, yes, but it's not without hope. And it wasn't without hope for Samson, and it's not without hope for the nation of Israel, and it's not without hope for you and for me. Samson, at the end, of course, we see him enslaved and blind and humiliated, but verse 28 is such a beautiful verse. Samson cries out to the Lord one more time. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me, O God. Please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Of course, you could say, well, Samson's prayer isn't so much for the glory of God. It seems like it's personal revenge, and maybe that's the case. But at least he's praying again. And we all know what happened as a result of this. It wasn't that Samson's hair has grown back far enough somehow, and magically Samson had his strength back. But the, the point was that God heard this prayer, and God heard the cry of his servant in desperate circumstances. And think of this in the wake of miserable failure. Do we hear that point? That's where the hope comes in. That's where the grace shines brightly here. And so we read this story in hope. One writer puts it this way. And what of the Christian who has stupidly and miserably failed his Lord? Should he not find hope in seeing that being cast down does not mean being cast off? Should he not rejoice that he can call on God even from Dagon's temple? I love that phrase. You and I can call on God even from Dagon's temple. Now, that's not an excuse to go there in the first place. But what cause for hope and renewed strength that God has not abandoned us? And we can cry to him even in the wake of our miserable failure and stupidity and sin. And so I ask you, where are you today? Maybe you're rejoicing in God and very blessed in the Lord and feeling very close to God and being blessed with fellowship with Him. But maybe you're hearing this and it's a time of life when you are distant from God. Maybe a Samson-like departure to some degree. And you've been self-sufficient and you haven't been praying and you haven't been close to God and 
you haven't been getting into God's word and you've just been allured by the world. And, and maybe God is speaking to you, don't despair, call upon me, even in your desperate circumstances. One thing we see from this, one of God's chosen instruments for weaning his people from their idols is his faith, faithful discipline. Yes, as the hymn says, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart, wean it from earth. So it's the Spirit of God at work. But one of the other ways God's works, and in conjunction with the Spirit, is His discipline. In a sense, this even final episode of chapter of Samson's life was God's discipline. Even like we read that the Corinthians and their abuse of the Lord's Supper, some of them were sick, some had fallen asleep, some had died. And Paul is referring to that as God's fatherly discipline in their lives. So, think of it this way. God doesn't let his people be overwhelmed with idolatry. God continues to pull us back from idolatry. And often, he uses his faithful discipline in our lives by bringing suffering, by bringing hardship to wean us from our idols. Bill Peepgrass was talking in our Sunday school class this morning about Haiti, and he lived for 18 years there and was a mission, missionary there. And he made this remark that really stuck with me. He said, the people, the Christians there, long for heaven much more than most Americans do. And Bill said, it's because we're happy with our lives. We like our lives for the most part. They long for heaven because life for them is very hard. That convicts me, doesn't it? But isn't in a sense, that, doesn't that show us something of what God does in our lives by his discipline? He doesn't want us typically to be happy with our lives here and to be comfortable and content with our lives here. Yes, many times he gives us that. But often he makes us discontent with this life and unhappy with this life because he wants to prepare us for heaven. He wants us to long for heaven, not just to be rid of suffering here, but to know him and to see his face. For Samson, the temp- temple of De- Dagon became a temple of doom for the enemies of God's people, but it became a temple of return and repentance, and we might say even hope, even in death for Samson. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that your spirit is at work in our lives, striving and working and producing the fruit of the spirit and weaning us from the things of this world and stopping us short from the path of sin and temptation that we often would choose. Thank you for your loving discipline Thank you that you keep us to the end, all to the praise of your name. And we pray if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know what it is to trust Jesus Christ, who doesn't know what it is to call upon you initially and to call upon Jesus Christ and to believe the promises of your word that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We pray that you might work in that person's life even now, bringing about saving faith and making the promises of Jesus Christ very real and alive. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you for the Spirit of God who dwells with us. Keep us this week. 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen.